Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again for All Things Evangelism. This is a podcast where we just talk about various aspects of outreach ministry and soul winning, and we talk a lot about scripture, and I get guests on who I think have good things to say. And uh, today I have uh, Pastor Quentin Betteridge. That's it. Thanks for joining me, Quentin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. so good to have you, brother. You work at the King's Cliff Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yes, up in the north. How long have you been up there, brother? It's almost going three years now. Got started 2009. Three years. Yeah, three years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. How time, time flies, flies, hey? I know. I but like know. me, your Australian accent isn't perfect. Where uh, Where do you hail from? <laughs> yeah, from South, from South Africa. So from South the Africa. Southern, very southern. That's area. awesome, man. We're glad to have you here in Australia, this country of many different people from many different places. Hey, so today we're going to talk a bit about Jesus and how he was willing to confront people mm. from time to time. Because he really cared about them and he wanted them to understand where they were positioned in relationship to God and what they needed to do to get in the right space to relate yeah, yeah, yeah. properly to God. I want to just tell a story to kick yeah. off our conversation. You can just take it wherever you want to go from here. But I used to do public evangelistic preaching in the United States. And when an evangelistic series would begin, I noticed that your preaching messages that by and large were accepted by everyone. And the people after each presentation, they'd come up to you, I love this message. Thank you so much. This is such a blessing. Whether they were seekers who didn't know that the Bible was a book you could take seriously, or if they were people from very, you know, different faith communities that were hearing, say, a great controversy sermon for the first time or something like that. But people were just, you know, stoked. They were just really excited about what they were hearing. And a positive rapport would be developed between myself and them. And then you get to these places where now you're turning a corner and you're getting to messages where you're going to have to risk a relationship because you're going to present certain things from scripture that will challenge people and that will risk the rapport that you've developed with them through preaching these other messages. Yeah, And uh, it would be really hard for me and challenging, I don't know, whatever the topic, whatever the subject, to address something that I knew was going to challenge someone whether on a personal spiritual level or challenge like concepts that they'd had about scripture. And so it really required a gut check on my part to to know whether or not I was willing to tell people something that might risk the relationship and kind of confront yeah. a false concept from the Bible or a lifestyle issue that was impeding a person in their religious walk with God or whatever it was. And I think that the Adventist church, we all to some degree can relate to that situation that I experienced. We might have a community service ministry in our church, or we may be doing a series of health presentations and we've developed a rapport with people and things are going great. And we may be moved by the spirit to maybe present something to them or make an appeal to them or just go to the next level. And that can be a challenge. Mm. Have you ever experienced that or thoughts in that regard? I experience that every week, man. Just preaching is one of those things where you sometimes have to address something. Or our church is open almost every day of the week. We have lots of people coming in for various things. So you connect with people. And so it's sometimes difficult. Because I think we live in this age where tolerance is the main thing. Everybody just wants to be tolerant of everybody whatever you do, whatever lifestyle you have. And so tolerance becomes the main thing. If you're a Bible-believing Christian there and you really care for people and you love people, you want to share stuff that you know will be out of harmony with God or the reality and you know that this will be damaging to them. Or And sometimes you have to get to the point where you almost have to confront them with that and speak to them about a specific truth. And then when you get engaged in that, you like you say, sit between these two extremes of 
do you say this and then lose the relationship or is it going to strengthen the relationship? Because some people will be like, oh, thanks for addressing this with me. I had this conception. And so it can go either way. And sometimes you're like, ah, what do you do? But And especially in evangelism, because you're so focused Mm -hmm. on making their lives better or connecting them to God. And for me, to be honest, I think the key thing for me that changed my perspective of not being so fearful about it, one of the things that I have to realize that it's not... I'm just the messenger of the message. And so it's not the messenger that is confronting necessarily. It's the message. Like the message of Christ is confronting. It is difficult. It is sacrificial. It's not always easy. Even for Christians that have walked this path for how many years, it's still confronting. And I think that's a part that we sometimes minimize how difficult it is. But even Jesus, when he was calling his disciples, made it say to them, hey guys, you need to count the cost. Like you need to know this is difficult. This isn't easy. And so I, I think that there's some of those realities we have to get on our minds to say, it's going to be di- there's going to be these difficult conversation mm-hmm. of, of confrontation. It's just how do we approach it? And what would be the spirit of Christ in approaching it? Mm-hmm. I think is the key thing. Totally. I, I remember doing a stop smoking program once and I had planned, my strategy was, that we would do the various, each night we would have, you know, a different theme and it would be all focused on quitting cigarette smoking and yeah. we had doctors coming in and really good scientific information and breakout groups. And it was a really cool program that uh, we put together. And my strategy was to incrementally increase the level of spirituality of the programs each night, but it wasn't preaching, say, biblical truths or anything. It was just alerting people to the need for, for faith. And it would be, I'd drop like little spiritual gems, like little yeah. spiritual concepts or spiritual ideas, or just, just to test the waters a bit throughout the course and then incrementally be more free speaking of spiritual things as the people got more comfortable and mm. as our relationships got stronger. And then the last night, we planned to have people come in and share their testimony of how they were freed from addictions. And then each of those people they leaned on God to escape their addictions, whether it was alcohol or cigarettes or whatever. And then at the end of that, we would just make an appeal if people who had come would like to meet and study the Bible together to seek you know, full freedom, not just from the addiction of, say, cigarettes, other things, and, and that God loves them and this and that. So it was so scary coming to the last night because the first time we did it, because it was like, we could never do this and leave and we've, we're all cool. Yeah. Everything's cool. There's no rejection involved. Like they will not reject God. Jesus says that if you don't believe, you're condemned already. Like you you reject God by default. Our nature is at enmity with God. So anyways, we did it. And yeah, not everybody responds positively, but we never we did it in such a way that was unoffensive that mm. we were just making an opportunity available. We weren't making people feel like they that we only cared about them if they said yes to our Bible studies. And so we were really careful to communicate in a way that didn't alienate, but at the same time, we knew that in making this appeal, we were risking some people being offended and some people thinking, yeah, you guys are religious wackos. But that was the price we had to pay to get mm-hmm. anyone in Bible studies. So yeah, it was yeah. like this, we had to do this kind of analysis in our mind, like we're going to have to risk losing some in order to really win any. And that was a challenging thing for us. But we decided that we would confront, like in when I say confront, I mean yeah, go for it. Like we're going to yeah, go yeah. further and try to take them to the next step. And yeah, we got Bible studies from that. And that really taught me a lesson that you can, I think it's important that we in our missional you know, work and our outreach ministry should be willing to do that kind of stuff where we're willing to take people to the next level, which may mean confronting something yeah, to one yeah. degree or another. 
Yeah. But no, I, I want to probe that idea of you said that you were scared. And I think a lot of the listeners would be able to resonate with that. It is a scare. But what is the thing that you think that that is at the heart of this fear of this confrontation? What do you think is the why was why were you and your team more fearful of doing this confrontation of actually making this call? Yeah, first it was the fear of the unknown. It's just the natural fear of the unknown. We'd never done it before. And yeah. when you've never done something before, it's just natural. It's just scary. It's just the way that it goes. You jump off of a five meter little diving board. It's yeah. a bit scary. Time. And then once you do it, it's nothing. The second thing I think is the devil, right? Like he he's going to kind of try to magnify those feelings of fear because he wants to keep you from doing it. Because we as human beings t- tend to avoid what's uncomfortable. Also fear of rejection. And the fear of injuring a person or fear of failure or offending or these kinds of things, what you were saying earlier, in our culture, we have a a terrible fear of offending anyone. We just feel like we have to make sure everyone, no one in the world is offended. Like I'm personally responsible for everyone in the world's feelings. That's a sense that we have in our society. And so there's that fear too. And then I think to a little kind of partnering with the idea of fear of the unknown is fear of success because if people say yes now there's a whole new world of responsibility and work yeah. that we're unfamiliar with we may the idea of winning people is is easier than winning people and if i make an appeal to some friends at a stop smoking program to study the bible with me if they all say yeah i guess what i have to do next week give You're a first get- bible study to five yeah. people who we've been hanging out talking about quitting smoking for yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah. That's a whole new world. And that's, yeah. that's a bit of a challenge. Which brings more confrontation because you know that when you're going to start studying the Bible, there's going to be stuff that's going to confront them even more. And so there's been more kind of fear. And the interesting for me thing about this is that the levels of fear all speak to different things. And I think all of it could be le- like, all of it is legitimate. For instance, I think that there, there is a part where we as Christians should be fearful of the image that we have already. I was reading this book last week called Unchristian. Uh, where this uh, researcher, David Kinnaman, goes and researches outsiders on how they perceive Christians. And they perceive Christians as unchristian. They're like, you're, we know you're Christ. And these outsiders aren't people that aren't aware of Christianity. They are generally people that knew about Christ or were part of Christ, a Christian movement and then left the church. So a lot, majority of them, or, or they have some close connection to somebody that is a Christian. So they're aware of the Christian story. They know Jesus, they know the Bible. And a lot of the stuff is we're hypocritical, we're judgmental. Um, we're always just trying to get, we have a, we're gender driven. We want to get people, like we do stuff to just, and part of that confrontation is that we have this negative image. And I think the one um, comment that was interesting to me was where the individual said the Christians are just trying to get us into just get us into the walls and then they leave us and they you know always want to tell us how to live but they don't even live up to their own standards and so I think we come to this point where you have to be humble yeah we all messed up so that fear is real that people almost have this distaste or disdain to Christians already and when you have to come with a confronting message immediately you come with that image already and then with the other side of it is, is actually that the Holy Spirit is in pressing on them that whatever they're doing is wrong so there's already something moving in them and then you're coming with the gospel which is sometimes confrontational even though it's beautiful and there's beautiful aspects to it that can be confrontational and so it's being those things where you want to preach the gospel that is confrontational and mm-hmm. that is does take commitment but on the other hand you don't want to be that kind of image of a christian that is just this ugly person that just cares about themselves but you want to be a, a loving christian and so i think it's like being able to discern what kind of fears are what kind of fears and which are legitimate and saying, okay, this is a legitimate fear. We have to minimize that. And other fears like confronting people with the gospel truth, that's something that we, we should actually not be afraid of. We should just be like, yeah, it's just how it is. Like we should just mm-hmm. preach it 
unashamed. It's like managing the, the fears, I'd say. Totally. Jesus was always willing when the time was right to what I would say would be confront people. Yeah. And like we were talking before we started to record, it was because he was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. So Jesus was not concerned about keeping peace at all costs or making it seem like there was peace when there wasn't. He came to bring mankind together with God. And if he could identify in someone something that was a barrier between them and God, he would alert them to that fact. And he Mm. would do it because he wanted them to be at peace with God. That was his ultimate goal. And really that Jesus was a peacemaker, not peacekeeper is demonstrated by his willingness to be crucified. Like usually peacekeepers they avoid conflict. They, they just want to pretend like there's nothing wrong and let's just see yeah, everything's okay yeah. because they're afraid to go through the process necessary to bring two parties together. But Jesus is not unwilling to go through whatever process he has to go through to bring two parties together. He gives yeah. his own life to bring God and mankind together. Yeah. Is there any kind of things that come to your mind when you think of Jesus and his approach to you know confronting? Because I think in being a peacemaker, someone who will go through whatever process necessary to bring two parties together, if that means calling someone out, he'll do it. If that means revealing to them that they need to be born again, that's pretty confrontational, right? Yeah, yeah. There's something wrong with the way you were born. It has to happen over again. So many of Jesus's teachings where it's just, wow. Like just saying, if you're angry at your brother in your heart without a good reason, like you're a murderer, that's pretty confrontational, wouldn't you say? The truth that he's proclaiming, who does it not confront? You yeah. Know? Anyways, I think the key thing is that we have to define confrontation and peace. Like from a biblical perspective, what does it actually mean? Because like you're saying, confrontation becomes this thing where everybody wants to mitigate confrontation completely and say, oh, to be to have peace is minus conflict. But that's not actually what peace is. Like the concept of peace in the Bible, the word shalom, peace as in there's no conflict. It just literally means wholeness. So the word that's used in the Old Testament consistently regarding seeking peace, he's saying peace will come when there's wholeness. And so there's these even verses in the Bible where they're building a wall and the wall isn't peace because there's a brick that's missing. And so when that brick is put in there, oh, now it's at peace. Or when your when your tent, for instance, is in disarray or your, your sheep pen has a sheep missing, then there's no peace there because something's missing. And I think that's what the gospel does is the gospel brings that shalom. It brings that completeness. And so sometimes we live, well, not sometimes, we are born in a state, not at peace with ourselves, not at peace with community, not at peace with God. And so the gospel comes. And that's the beauty of Paul's gospel or or Paul's epistles is that you'll see it always starts off and he says, grace and peace to you. He starts off and he says, grace, you cannot have peace without grace. He starts off with a grace. He says, grace be with you. And then when you have, have God's grace, then you have peace. But if you think about the story of God's grace coming to us, there's conflict involved. Like you're saying, he had to die on the cross. Revelation chapter 12, Michael was fighting against the devil. So there's constantly this warring going on. But I think that in the conflict, in the conflict, the way that Jesus fights in the conflict and the way that he confronts is sometimes different than the way that the devil confronts and the way that the devil is part of this conflict. Jesus is all about sacrifice. He's all about giving up and fighting towards that. Sometimes he has to speak truth but he always does it with grace. That's one of the things in the book of John's gospel in the first section in the prologue. Um, he says that Moses came with, tru- with um, truth, but Jesus came with grace and truth. That idea that Jesus speaks truth, but he always does it with grace. One of the concepts that mm-hmm. Anna White actually uses of the, of the church is this idea of the, of the church militant and the church triumphant. And that's what comes to my mind. Like this idea, we have to be, now when we think about militant, we have to think about fighting. 
me, right? Ellen White has this yeah. beautiful quote. Bombs and guns and yeah, 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 yeah. She has this beautiful quote where she says, "The life of Christ was a life charged with a divine message of the love of God, and he longed intensely to impart this love to others in his rich measure." Jesus comes, and everything that he does is to show the love of God. So when he confronts. He's doing it as a method to get to the love of God, get to the shalom, because there's something breaking the shalom. And so he's driving towards that. But then she says, compassion beamed from his countenance and his conduct was characterized by grace, by humility, by truth and love. Every member of his church militant must manifest the same qualities. I love that paradox of the church militant, of church fighting, is not a church at arms or they are at a church with arms, but their weapons of destruction of the of the darkness is not power and coercion and force. It is grace and humility and truth and love. So when Jesus confronts, he tells us to confront the way that he would confront. Anna White has this thing where she says that he did it with tears in his eyes. He confronted the Pharisees, called them a brood of vipers. He had very stark and, and pointed words, but he did it with tears in his eyes, with compassion in his heart. Never needlessly, needlessly spoke a word and just to censure a soul, but made sure that's how he confronted them with this deep humility, deep love, deep, deep grace. That's what I think of the con confront people 100%, but the way and the method and the motivation for the Christian is completely different than the world. That's a really important point. I really appreciate you bringing that out. Something that I thought of while you were speaking was that we may be down on the idea of confrontation in our society because we're just not good at it. Mm. And we probably don't confront situations until we're really mad. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I think that happens a lot where people carry a frustration or a burden or an annoyance or whatever it is, or maybe even a conviction for so long that they, they don't act on it. And then it takes them getting angry before they do. Like it simmers. Yeah. It's just well, always, yeah. It simmers forever. That's right. So let's just, just in our interpersonal relationships, but in, in many cases, we're not comfortable communicating something that we think may make someone uncomfortable or we it just seems yeah that that's just the general tenor of many western relationships in the modern era and so it's yeah. not until we get really angry that we tell the truth i saw a movie one time where there was an african-american guy hit and a white guy and they were arguing in a bathroom and one was the agent and the other was the athlete and so it was a tom cruise movie called jerry Maguire. it's an old movie from oh, the yeah. 90s yeah. And and Tom Cruise's character is he's trying to inspire his player to perform better in the games and to give more. Mm -hmm. And the African American guys just just get me more money, man. That's you're my agent, get me more money. And and so they're fighting and arguing back and forth and it's very passionate. And the uh, the black guy starts to laugh. He's he's starts to laugh right in the middle of the fight and he says, "Jerry, this is the thing that I love about you. You're so passionate for a white person." <laughs> and he says, "But the difference between you and me is that you think we're fighting." And I think we're just beginning to communicate. Yeah, yeah. And that really highlights, that's a really cool comment on society. And that is that sometimes we think we're fighting when we're just beginning to communicate. Mm. And the only reason why we're fighting is because we're so poor at communicating with each other honestly and openly. And that yeah. we, we're so averse to possibly offending and possibly fracturing the relationship because we're just all insecure. And so mm. I think if we were better at just being open and honest with each other, and if we were really just more committed to each other in society, we wouldn't see confrontation on a spiritual mm. level as such a big deal. So I, I'm making just social commentary, but I think this mm. applies to the church and how we relate yeah. to communicating our message. Maybe we need to go on a journey of learning how to just address what are now uncomfortable circumstances, get out of our comfort zone, 
learn more how to tell people the truth and to tell them the truth in a way as unoffensive as possible, as loving as possible, yeah. but not hold back the truth because we're afraid. And yeah. then I think over time, we'll get yeah. better at, quote, confrontation. Jesus was where we could say things like a lot of the things that Jesus says, we're like, if you really assess what he says, it's whoa, did he just say that? Yeah, yeah, did yeah. Did he really say that? Yeah, yeah. And, and it seems so extraordinary because in our cultural context, like to say that you got to be really mad at someone. But maybe in Jesus's cultural context, you didn't. Maybe that was just more normal in the Near Eastern world of the time. And maybe with Jesus's heart of love, he's not even coming at it from the angle of, I'm beating you, I'm putting you down, I'm mad at you. And this is a quote, confrontation. It's more, it's different than that. And yeah, that's just something yeah. that I think of. I think the thing is that's actual love. Because uh, I, I had this conversation with my wife not too long ago. She had to confront a friend about something. And she's like, ah, she's very conflict averse. And so she, and she's like, I don't really, I, I know I should, but I don't know. And I said to her, man, you know, the things that it depends on how much you value the relationship. Because if you like this relationship is not really worth, you know, anything, then don't talk about it, just let it be. But if this is, if you really love this person, you really care about this person, your love for yourself will diminish when you're saying, this is uncomfortable for me. That's why people don't do this because their love for their, Comfort is more important than the love for the person. And, and you're saying, this is going to be uncomfortable and I don't love this feeling and I don't love this situation, but I love you enough that I'm willing to go through this unpleasant process in order to address what needs to be addressed in order that we can have an authentic relationship. So we have these superficial relationships and this super, we, we move towards superficial harmony. Ken Sands actually, um, uh, probably one of the best books on co Christian conflict resolution. I think his book is called Peace, The Peacemaker or something like that. He has this analogy of a skunk and a, a turtle. And he says that the turtle is the one that pulls its head in and that's peace faking. Oh, everything is fine when it's not, it's just simmering. And on the other hand, you have the skunk that just comes in and sprays everybody, just stinks up the place. And that's just the aggressor. So it's this kind of fighting and fleeing. But the middle part is the Christian part where you're open for freedom. And you're saying, man, I, I want to talk. I'm not just going to react to this, but I want to speak through this. I want to engage through this. If we can't figure it out, let's get somebody else in. And I think that's the way that we should think about conflict is that there can be a middle way where conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. It's something like, I like the word which you're saying, like peacemaking is not peace faking or peace avoiding or whatever. It's actually making peace, bringing wholeness to the person, to the context or whatever. But it's not easy and it doesn't always work out. Like sometimes it does lead to mm -hmm. break break down a relationship or the person walks away and doesn't want anything to do with it. Like, that's just reality as well. And don't you think, Quentin, that we have an unrealistic view of relationships where we think that in order to have a good relationship, you could never disagree or have something yeah. to work through? It seems like we've got this really unrealistic expectation of relationships and maybe if we could now we're just talking about human relationships but this relates to mission yeah maybe if we understood that in all human interactions when you're trying to make peace and come together and to understand things the same and to work things out and to promote truth and to get people to come to a knowledge of the truth it's natural to have conflict oh, but yeah. not conflict in the way of you're my adversary i'm your adversary but more i'm going to confront a situation that i see is hindering you and I being on the same page or you and God being on the same page. Like mm. perhaps that's what we need to do is shift our thinking in regards to confrontation and conflict and realize yeah. that there's the kind of adversarial conflict where you're just trying to destroy someone. And that's like the kind of the devil's way. He's the accuser of the brethren. And then yeah. there's the, no, you're going to confront someone because you love them and care for them. And you want to make sure that they're where they need to be to have a great relationship with God. And you're, you two are where you need to be to have a great relationship with each other. And that's like the spirit of the Holy Spirit who convinces people of sin. So there's this interesting 
like juxtaposition that scripture makes between the devil and the Holy Spirit, where like he's the, the devil's the accuser of the brethren. If you're accused, you're you can't be accused if you're not guilty, right? Like the, Satan accuses us because he has a reason to. We're guilty. Mm. So he highlights the fact that you're guilty and he accuses you, but with the intention to condemn you. But the Holy Spirit, he convinces you of sin or convicts you of sin. If you're convicted, it's because you, there's a reason for you to be convicted. You're guilty. So yeah. the Spirit of God highlights the fact that you're guilty, and the devil highlights the fact that you're guilty, but they're doing it for two different reasons. And just mm. like they could highlight the same fact for two different reasons, the Holy Spirit, so that you could come to repentance and be free, and the devil, so he could crush and destroy you. It's the same with conflict and confrontation and mission, where you could do it because you're someone's adversary and you're trying to put them down. Or you could do it because you really want them to have the best possible relationship with God and with you and with the world and everybody. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, and it's that kind of thing. The Holy Spirit draws to God. The Satan wants to push away from God. That's the two things: drawing to God. Yeah. I I think the, the well, there's so many stuff that you've said that my that I'd love to discuss. The one thing that I think is that some people say, oh, some people need to confront, but I don't. But I think at one point all of us do, right? And, and it, it stems from this idea that. Jesus, in, in Matthew, it says Jesus Christ. Like they start with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word Jesus Christ is actually called, in, in the New Testament, it's called Jesus. The Christ is not a personal name. We use it as a personal name. But it's actually a designation of an office, an office of the prophet, the priest, and the king, the anointed one. And if you th- look at that idea of the prophet, priest, and king, you have the prophet that comes and confronts and speaks. He comes from God. Both, All of them are mediators, right? So Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. He doesn't come and bring the word of God, but he is the word of God. And sometimes the word of God is confronting. And so he comes and he brings the word of God, right? Jesus is the priest then then also mediates from the people to God. So the one as the prophet, he comes from God to the people. As the priest, he comes from the people to God, 100% man, 100% God as this perfect bridge. And then as the king, he not only tells you how to live, but then he lives that as the king, right? He says, this is the law. And then he lives that. And so we see the king in, in, in Matthew, once again, Matthew chapter 27, shows this beautiful portrayal of the king sacrificing himself. They're mocking him irony after irony, saying, oh, is this the king of the Jews? Like, why doesn't he save himself? And Matthew is using irony in, in Matthew chapter 27, from verse 27 to 42, shows this concept of the king stepping down, showing how he's, you know, they mock him that he's not that powerful. But his power is actually seen by staying on the cross, not getting off the cross. He shows that he is truly the king that reigns from this place of suffering. You see Jesus as the prophet, the priest, and the king. He lives this gospel. He brings this gospel. And even today through the Holy Spirit, when we read the written word, we confront the living word. And that's confronting to our sinful states that's in a state of disarray and not in a state of shalom. But then in Peter, he builds on this concept and he says that you, church, You're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. He basically gave that designation to us and saying, you guys are now following your little Christs, your prophet, priests, and kings. We are part of a prophetic movement. And so we need to go out and bring this, right? And that's confrontational. And so I think part of the going out and confront, uh, confronting people, the message does that. And we shouldn't be afraid of that, just like Jesus. But at the same time, we should have this mindset of Jesus where we're saying we want to build bridges, not walls to people. But the way that I think the, the thing that we're struggling with today, like speaking back to this idea that 
in Jesus' time, it might be a, a bit different. I think humanity is on a different place, just culturally and philosophically and ideologically. One of the main things that's driving us today is this concept of expressive individualism. So you are who you are and you can choose who you want to be. You're like, you're an individual. You do you. You want to follow this. You want to do this. You're like, you do. And you, we want to express that individualism. And so we think that everybody can be different and everybody can choose their own realities in a sense. Everybody can choose their own moral views and everybody can choose yeah, their the own universe that they live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that, that in itself would break down because the world doesn't work that way. Reality doesn't work that way. And so when you're bringing an objective reality to the subjective world, it's going to be confrontational no matter what you do. So no matter how. Yeah, it's just going to be confrontational. Yeah, like if, if you have people, everybody, and oh, what's her name? Nancy Piercy has this book where she speaks about this move that we live in, this scientism philosophy that's per permeating our society today, where we have this divide, this dichotomy between fact and value systems. So everything that's religious is almost placed in this value system that is subjective and everything that is material or from science is at the bottom level, which is the fact thing. So you don't confront people with facts about science or the world, but anything that's religious will become a value system confrontation and say, so, well, that's your truth, but that's not my truth. Where we come as Christians and we're saying there's some truth that's beyond us, that there's a God, right? That's a that's a fact that's beyond us. That's whether I believe it or not, that's just reality. Whether there's a specific way that is the best for life, that's just a reality. Like there's certain ways that we've been engineered as human beings created by God to live, that if you're out of sync with that, you're just going to unravel yourself and unravel the community that you're in. That's just, a, and we see that today. And But when you come and you speak that reality into a reality that's based on subject, subjective values, you're standing in a place where there's just, conflict is unavoidable it's just how, how do you yeah, address the, the reality of god is confrontational to the world yeah. that we live in because yeah. each individual thinks that they're their own god basically so yeah. preaching yeah. that there actually is a god is pretty confrontational in, in and of itself bro okay i have this idea and we didn't for those of you guys listening we didn't plan this ahead of time so we're just going off the cuff here i want to do something like a little bit of a exercise here with you quentin yeah i'm going to mention situations in the bible where either jesus or a prophet I'll probably just focus on Jesus, confronted someone. It wasn't necessarily confrontation, by the way, of I'm going to argue with you, but he presented something that confronted their reality. It just, it would be challenging for them to hear, or maybe it would just challenge them. And then I want you to just comment on it, if you would. Just a short yeah. commentary on it, just but brief, yeah. because I'm going to try to name a couple. Does that sound cool? Would you be willing yeah, yeah. to do that? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you're cool. Okay, so in Luke chapter 18, there's a rich ruler, yeah. and... The Bible calls him the rich young ruler. All the subheadings in most Bible translations say the rich young ruler. I don't know why, because in the story itself, when Jesus interacts with this person, says that he's kept the commandments since his youth, which seems to indicate that he's no longer a youth because he's been yeah. keeping the commandments since he was a youth. But whatever. This is who we call the rich young ruler. And no need to let the text get in the way of tradition. So we'll still call him the rich young ruler. But so what happens? Yeah. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's one good. That's God in heaven. How do you understand the commandments? And Jesus named five of the last six commandments. He leaves mm -hmm. out the last commandment, which is thou shalt not covet. And then the young man uh, says, I've kept all those commandments since I was a kid. And then Jesus says, but there's one thing you lack. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor and follow me. And then you'll have riches in heaven. Now, that is a confrontational message, right? Mm -hmm. That's a message that is challenging this guy. 
and that's confronting this guy. Any comments or thoughts on that? Yeah, I think once again, it's this idea which God is trying to, or Jesus is trying to bring shalom to this guy. He wants to bring like complete wholeness to him. And yeah, I think the emphasis of the story is that he's building almost his power, his status, his identity around the riches and the wealth that he has. And he's trying to be a good person or show off that he's a good person, like demonstrate this. And, but Jesus, you know, confronts him and goes to the heart of the situation and says, yeah, let's talk about how good you really are. Let's talk about the brokenness that you still have. You're not complete. You're not together. And he, delves into the at the heart of the thing that he needed to hear. And Jesus does it all the time. I love that about Jesus, that he somehow, you know, Alan White says that he knew what was in the heart of man. He just nails it. He just goes straight to the point. Let's get away with all this fluff. This is the issue. Like you, you not complete yet. Even if you're keeping the, all the commandments, all of these commandments that you're listing off, like you're not whole because of these things that you, there's certain things that you still need to address. And obviously that will be confronting because that's the weakness that he still has. And I think that's the thing with confrontation is that, like you said earlier, like the devil comes to accuse us because we're guilty. Same with confrontation. It really only becomes confrontation when you know that, man, that's something that I'm messing up on or they, that's a weakness of mine. When somebody, when you're running 5Ks a day, you're running 5Ks a day, you're pretty fit. And somebody comes and says, oh, you're not training enough. They'll be like, yeah, I train enough. Like you're not going to, the confrontation that they might, you'll be like, I'm not going to listen to this. This is dumb. This is a stupid conversation. Because I know what you you generally get frustrated or you confrontational when it addresses something. And so you react to that confrontation. And I think that's what's happening here is Jesus just goes straight yeah. to the actual issue. So Jesus, okay, so the next one, John 4, the woman at the, he, Jesus confronts her by pointing out that she's got multiple, she's had multiple husbands and she's living with a man who's not her husband. He talks about how the Samaritans, you guys don't even know what you worship. We Jews, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Do you want some water that I have to give you? If you drink the water that I have to give you, you'll never get thirsty. I, I see that I, he does confront some things in her life. So any thoughts on that? That was just yeah. one that just came to mind. Yeah, it's interesting. The Luke one, I think the, the one in Luke, does the guy come to him? Um, like he comes to Jesus. Yes. Yeah, and he's yep. showing off. The thing with the, the one in John, she doesn't really come to Jesus. To Like he comes to her. And I like this way. This religious person comes to Jesus and he almost goes straight into it. But with the woman, he asks her for something first. So for firstly, for a Jewish guy, for a guy to speak to a lady, would you know, co completely taboo almost. But then now this, this Jewish guy to the Samaritan, if you think about classism, like she's on the lowest rung. And so for him to speak to her is already quite a, a, a big thing. And then he asks her for something, which I think would have immediately built a bit of rapport why is this guy asking something of me he's not obviously looking down on me he's not you know thinking less of me he's actually asking me there's a psychological trick almost to where he's asking her for something small i think dale gonaghy says this and how to win friends and, and influence people like ask them for something small because jesus knew that he had something way bigger to give her so he's building a bridge there saying hey can you give me something and then he starts engaging in conversation and as he's engaging in conversation i think then he goes and part of the part of the conf conflict or, or what do you call it, things that he's addressing is that he's trying to show her that he knows something. Like he's not just a man that's trying to down her on something. He's trying to show her that he sees something. And, and the way that for what she has done, obviously she feels a lot of shame and feels a lot of stuff that she's going through. She goes there in the middle of the day when nobody around the town obviously has rejected her. She's feeling terrible. This even today, if you have five husbands, man, even in today's lax society, 
that would have been a serious thing, even more so yeah. during that time. And somehow she doesn't seem to be that offended. It's almost that she says, man, this has been a revelation. So it seems the confrontation that happens isn't to a point where she's questioning her identity or questioning her worth or questioning, they're saying this guy's bringing me down or he's just trying to show that he's better. But somehow she, the verse there uh, in verse 26, right? Or verse 25 says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Suddenly she realizes, man, this guy is the Messiah. She runs away and she says, this guy's told me everything about myself. And she brings other people to Jesus. What I like about the story is that the confrontation is to build walls. So he doesn't skirt around the truth, but the way that he communicates that is compassion and love and grace in order to bring a greater, almost, it's almost like a cathartic experience that she's accepted by God. Like every society rejects her, but she's accepted by God. So this confrontation is a positive confrontation that leads her to understand that she's accepted. And now she becomes a disciple. She becomes an emissary. She becomes a witness of this, which which for me is pretty profound, I think. Yeah. How many times have we had conversations with people that were uncomfortable and then we came to terms and we came to understand we felt so good about it? Yeah, yeah. If the Holy Spirit is, and I think in mission and evangelism, the, the Holy Spirit is guiding people to truth. And he convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so in my ministry to someone else, in presenting a truth that may be new to them, it may not be new in the sense like, but it may be new like to them, but it's definitely what the Holy Spirit internally is leading them to. So yeah. if the Spirit of God is convicting someone and guiding them into truth, what I can, the more truth that I confront them with will just bring them peace like that scenario, that situation, right? Because people don't have peace outside of the truth, because it's the truth that sets you free. So when I'm living in a lie, when I'm deceived or in error, it, it may I may have to go through a period of discomfort to come to truth. But once I come to truth, it's like relieving and, and freeing. Mm. Like It's like an interpersonal relationship when we have, there's an elephant in the room between us and someone else. And then we confront that and we talk together and then we resolve the issue and we both feel like a thousand times better. We're, ah, I'm so glad that we had this talk. Oh, mm. so good. Yeah, because now the relationship is restored. And I think that's the same with evangelism and mission. When we bring someone to a knowledge of the truth and we go through that period where, ah, we had to confront some things or deal with some discomfort or present what they may be uncomfortable with and have to change to accept, there's a relief. There's, ah, fantastic, because you're free. You're free yeah. from the lie. You're free from the error. You're free from the deception. And okay, so one more. Let's do Peter with Jesus. Yeah. Matthew 16. Get thee behind me, Satan. That's pretty confrontational. Like when you oh, say yeah. it to a good friend in front of other people. That's I a think... biggie. Oh, That's yeah, a yeah. One. Hey, before before you comment, and this will be our, our last comment, but not last comment in totality, but this will be the last kind of verse. I think that Jesus was so sincere that a lot of the questions he asked people and a lot of the things he presented to people were just done in sincere innocence. Like, I think I, I can imagine Jesus asking the woman at the well, like, hey, how many hus husbands do you have? Like, he knew, but I think he was sincerely interested to know how she would respond to the question. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's none was, of this ego, was, pride, yeah. who's better. There's none of that stuff with Jesus. It's just this transparent kindness. It's yeah. just almost transparent sincerity to help people. Yeah. And so I think he would be really curious to know, like, how's she going to respond? He's really, mm. he sees the spirit in her life working and he sees himself as the external witness of the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to share with her truth. He is the truth. And I just think that he's just in love with bringing people to 
freedom and shalom, like yeah. you keep saying. Yeah, I think the the key thing is that the shalom of that person is the goal for him. Like he wants that person to be in a state of peace with himself, with God, with other people. Like that's the state because that's what, and so that's the goal for him. And, and we were speaking about this before we started the podcast on this idea of of power and status and um, how both conservatives and liberals, left and right, whatever you want to call it, like somehow sometimes the power and the status that's still the thing that drives them. This, the markers of those things are different. So some people will tell people that they're doing wrong and they want to confront their sin, but only to show them that they're bad and we're good. Like we, we push people down so that we feel better about ourselves and we spiritualize it by saying, no, but we're just addressing truth. You're not addressing truth. You're just being a jerk. Like that's the end of the thing. You just want to show that you're, <laughs> you just want to show that you're better. I don't think Jesus was doing that. Like he really too wanted to bring truth to them. Um, getting to the story in Matthew, the, the, the Matthew story is quite interesting because it speaks about the confrontational church, actually, because uh, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been going, he's been with his disciples about three and a half years. This is at the end of his ministry. And Jesus goes to a specific place. So I want to actually back up because I think that's why Jesus confronts them, confronts Peter. If we go to chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus goes and he goes to a specific place. And there's, there's three firsts in the story. He goes to Caesarea Philippi, which is a first. Jesus has never gone to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was about 50 kilometers north up to the territory of Dan. And Jesus generally moved from Galilee down to Jerusalem. So his territory was generally Galilee down, not Galilee north. Maybe once or twice did he go more kind of west. But most of the time it went down, so it went south. But for this reason, Jesus decides to go north to Caesarea Philippi, which is the most pagan horrific place that you can ever go to. And Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus takes them to, in that small section where, where he speaks about the gates of Hades, there was an actual literal place that they called the gates of Hades. And there's about six or seven temples in a place that's 200 square meters. Like it's a very small place, but there's a massive amount of temples. The temple of Zeus, there's a temple of Pan, the temple of Augustus. There's a few temples of Pan, actually the god of fertility. And they would actually sacrifice these goats and stuff and throw it into this place where they call the gates of Hades, which they would see as the gates to the underworld. So Jesus goes there with his disciples, one of the most pagan places, one of the most dark places that you would take. Like Jews would actually circumnavigate around this place because you don't want to get there. Jesus purposefully takes his church there or takes his people there. And then he says to Peter, who do people say that I am? And everybody says, oh, people say that you're, that you're you know, this prophet or that prophet. And then he says to them, who do you say? And they say that you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, you're the prophet, the priest, and the king, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've been waiting for. And he says, great, if you understand now who I am, I can now tell you who you are. You are the church. And that's the first time that he uses the word church there. So he basically, Jesus comes and he says the foundation of the church is built in this world to confront darkness. And then he says this, he says, and I tell you that you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. So we have this idea that Jesus says that my church will be a confronting church. It will be confronting to the gates of Hades and it won't be an offensive. Like you're not going to sit there and the devil is going to try and attack you. We're going to be, def we're going to be offensive, not defensive, right? We're going to be on the attack because we're going to spread the light, spread the gospel. Then Jesus speaks about his death and resurrection. And in that context, Peter says, no, Lord. He says there, verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. But he returned and said to him, get you behind me, Satan. 
for you are a hindrance to me. And that's the key thing I think about this conflict is that Jesus realizes, man, this world, there's darkness over this. There's immense darkness in this world. And my kingdom has come to bring light. And it's offensive to the kingdom of darkness. And anything that stands in my way needs to get out of the way. And you, Peter, at this point, you're a hindrance. Like you can be a part of the plan. Or this is the same guy that Jesus said, you're going to be a part of this. And now he's saying that you're... And so I think sometimes in the church, there's going to be, there has to be conflict to some people to say, hey, you're in the way of the gospel. Either get out of the way or get in line. Like somehow there needs to be those conversations. And once again, I think Jesus is realizing that if he just placates Peter and just says, okay, you know what? You're right. It's for the sake of peace. Let's not get into this. Jesus is saying, no, I'm fighting for peace, but true peace, authentic peace, not this social, artificial social peace that you're thinking about. Oh, no death, no anything. No, to bring true peace, to bring true shalom, it means that I need to go to the cross. It means that's how we fight against the darkness. And so for me, I think the most profound thing wrapping up the discussion about conflict is that for the Christian, conflict is inevitable, but the weapons of our conflict is different. It's rooted in Christ. It's rooted in love, compassion, humility, thinking of new ways of how we should do that. How we, Very quickly, if I can mention just one passage, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks about, about conflict and how we should act into this world. And Walter Wink actually has this thing that he calls the third way, where he calls that Jesus fights against this world. He's in confrontation with this world, but in a nonviolent way. Saying when Jesus says, turn the other te- cheek, he's not saying be a doormat, walk over me. In the cultural age, he said, if, you, if somebody comes and hits you with, Uh, on the right cheek, what they were doing actually is they were hitting you with their right hand because their left hand was unclean. And which means that if they're hitting you on the right cheek with their right arm or the right hand, they weren't hitting you with a fist. They were hitting you with a backhand. And if you were a Jewish man, you you could only backhand people that were somebody that was beneath you. So parents would backhand their children. Husbands would backhand their wives. Masters would backhand their slaves. You would only hit somebody with a fist that you see was equal to you. So Jesus was actually saying, turn the other cheek, turn the left cheek. So he will once again have to hit you with the right hand, but now he will have to hit you as an equal. So he's going to abuse you, but let him abuse you as an equal. And now if he abuses you, the community around you will say, hey, why are you hitting this guy? The next story where Jesus says, if somebody comes to you and they ask you for your outer cloak, give them the inner cloak as well. Jesus is essentially saying in a nutshell, give them everything. This guy is so poor. You don't even have a down payment to pay. You're actually giving your clothes. There is nothing else to give. Not only is uh, the first story is a violent oppression. This one is economic oppression. And Jesus says, yes, stand up to this. Fight against this. There's going to be conflict, but fight in it in a creative way. So what you do is give him everything and walk around naked. So when you're walking around naked, everybody's viewing you naked and they seeing your nakedness and the shame and that society, honor and shame cultures, the shame was on the person not being naked, but the one that is naked or the one that's viewing the person naked, right? So the community sees this person that is naked and the shame is on them and saying, hey, why are you naked? And they're saying, well, I'm being oppressed, economically oppressed by this guy. Or the next, <laughs> wow. or the next story of the, uh, of the soldier where Jesus says, if somebody comes to a Jewish person and says, hey, can you carry my bag for a mile? And you say, no, carry it for two miles. Jesus is not saying, yeah, just being oppressed, just be, just go with that. He says if there's political, say to them, yeah, cool, I'll, I won't just carry it for one mile, I'll carry it for two. Because the context, once again, in that time was that any Roman soldier could ask any Jew to carry their bag, but for a mile. Anything more than a mile, the soldier would actually get into trouble. So you can imagine the context there. 
you're walking after one mile. He says, okay, give me a bag back. You're like, no, no, it's fine. I'll keep on walking. He keeps on walking. Now the soldier is begging this person, hey, give me my bag back. Give me my bag back. Somehow you hope that a realization is sinking in that I'm a human being and you're oppressing me. Your, your government is oppressing me. You're a cog in this machine of oppression. So Jesus speaking about conflict, his method is always different to this world. Don't whimper in a corner. Stand up to oppression. Be, there's going to be conflict, but the way that you deal with it is completely different. In church cultures, in interpersonal cultures, in, in a evangelistic cultures, conflict is going to be there. How we fight it as Christians or address it is, I think, different. Dude, thank you so much for sharing that, Quinn. I just have been so blessed uh, by that statement, that does that commentary, and then also just our whole conversation. And guys, I hope that you've been as blessed as I have as well. Yeah, praise God for Jesus and his willing to do whatever it took to bring people in a, into a right relationship with God. He was a peacemaker. He was not a peacekeeper. And may we be the same, willing to confront not because we want to argue and to fight and because we like to put other people down, but rather confront people with truth, both mm. with how we, what we say and what we do. Anyways, God bless you guys. We look forward to hanging out again next week. Take care. See ya.